If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 13, as we continue our venture through this incredible gospel, we will be in verses 31 through 35, so 31 through the end of the chapter. Luke 13, 31 through 35. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along as well. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke chapter 13, starting verse 31. The Holy Spirit says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write his eternal truths on all of our hearts. A fox in a hen house got, away, got way more than it bargained for when a group of killer chickens turned the tables on their traditional foe and pecked it to death. So read the first line of a 2019 news story out of France. The scene unfolded like this. At a poultry house at an agricultural school in Brittany region of France, a fox walked in through these automatic doors that they have, uh, which enable the hens to go outside where they spend most of their time. But the fox became trapped inside the hen house once the doors closed and stayed closed at dusk. The fox likely expected, right, like an absolute feast when he entered a building that housed over 3,000 chickens, but instead found himself cornered and ganged up on as the chickens pecked him mercilessly until he died. Uh, the body of the fox was discovered the following morning by a student who were, students who were making the routine check on the creatures. There in the corner, we found this dead fox, Pascal Daniel, the head of farming school, said. There was a herd instinct, and they attacked him with their beaks. See, about a year before, another fox came into that same hen house, and the hens didn't fare so well. Well, perhaps, he said, the animals had learned to defend themselves since then. That real-life story almost sounds like it came out of Aesop's fables, doesn't it? Uh, do you remember the, the, the Aesop fable about the fox, uh, the hen and the fox? You know, there's a hen, he was in a tree, and uh, the fox came and he told the hen, uh, it, it's safe to come down. And he said, because all the animals struck a deal, and we're all going to live at peace with each other. And, you know, the hen, you could trust me, the fox said, and, and you should just come down and, and I'll wait for you. And uh, then we could celebrate together. That's what the fox said. Then the hen said, you know what? I could see in the distance a bunch of dogs running this way. And, uh, you know, the fox said, oh, well, I have to go. And the hen said, well, what about the peace deal that you were just telling me about? And the fox said, well, maybe they haven't heard yet. And uh, anyway, I got some errands, so I got to run anyway, so I got to go. Right? And he took off, and so he wouldn't be prey for the dogs. Well, the fox got outfoxed, right? Both there and in that true story in France. Well, in our text this morning, we have a story of a fox and a hen. 
But in a way, that's perhaps even more surprising than those two stories that I've just told you about. But in this text, we see something similar to those in, that, in the fox and the hen stories, which is that the hen will outsmart the fox. And that the hen is more powerful than even the crafty and cunning fox is. Something that will also help shape our, uh, uh, the text is the word. If you look down at your ESV translation, that word want in 31 and 34, it appears twice in 34. That's the Greek word, which is thelo, which means something like a wish or strong desire. And we see three people in this text, this kind of shapes this text, have desires in just these, three, these short verses. Herod desires to kill Jesus. Jesus desires to gather the people under his wings. And the people desire to reject Jesus' desire. So let's walk through this text and see what we can see, okay? We must recall what we noted last week, which is that since 951, uh, Jesus has been headed towards Jerusalem. He, he said that, uh, we said that everything from 951 on is under the shadow of the cross. Our, our text last week bore this out, right? And Jesus is expressing an urgency for the people to respond to his message because there will be a time when it's too late to respond. Remember in that scene last week, he pictures himself as like a banquet host, and he opens the door for people to enter through the narrow way. But, said Jesus, eventually I will close the door, and uh, those who haven't responded properly will be left outside knocking until they're finally cast out. Now, that's a grim, grim picture indeed, but a needed one, right, as the cross looms over that text. Well, our text this morning is connected to that picture that came before it uh, in that it continues to express urgency to respond, and the necessity in responding a particular way that Jesus says. Now, we see the connection at the beginning of verse 31 in what Jesus, in Luke tells us, at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him. So it was while Jesus was talking and warning the nation that some Pharisees came with their own warning for him. They say, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And that they are warning him that Herod Antipas is seeking to kill and seize him. So the Pharisees advise him, leave the region and avoid capture and certain death from this manic king. Now, readers of Luke, us, both are familiar with Herod and the Pharisees, right? And they both have been shown in a negative light this far. I think that's fair to say. We know the Pharisees as people, they constantly are critiquing and questioning Jesus. We know they get upset when Jesus hangs out with the riffraff and do, does things they don't approve of. And when he touches the unclean, we know they get in a tizzy when Jesus and his disciples do things on the Sabbath that go against their man-made traditions, right? So when they come with this warning, the Pharisees were on our guard right, to expect something nefarious. What's their angle? What's their angle here? Do they suddenly have a concern for Jesus, and now they don't want to see him killed or harmed by Herod? Or could it be that they want him, they don't want him ministering in their area, so they use the fact that Herod wants him dead to get him out of the region and thus out of their hair, right? It's likely that the Pharisees aren't being friendly, Nothing in Luke has pointed us to their friendliness and concern for Jesus. The likely answer is they just want Jesus to go away. And we're also familiar with Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the one who ordered the baby boys to be killed when he heard that another king had been born in Bethlehem, which led Mary and Joseph to take Jesus to Egypt. Well, Herod Antipas 
was Herod, that Herod's son. And we have seen this Herod uh, in Luke's gospel as the one who imprisoned and eventually beheaded John the Baptist. And why did he arrest John the Baptist? Well, because John had the temerity to call Herod out for his hideous ethics and practices. That's why we know powerful people don't like that, do, do they? So Herod seized him until he beheaded him at the behest of his daughter-in-law. It would seem likely then that Herod wishes to ensure Jesus shares John the Baptist's fate. What will Jesus do then under this looming threat from this wicked king? What would you do? Well, Jesus has a message for Herod, doesn't he? Jesus says to the Pharisees, you go, you tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is telling Herod, through the Pharisees, in essence, he will not cower at the prospect of death. In fact, his mission is to go to Jerusalem and die. He is saying, I will finish my task, and there isn't a single thing Herod can do about it. He says, I will continue to heal the sick, and I will cast out demons, and I'll do it in this area. And if Herod doesn't like it, then guess what? That's just too bad. Now, here's our reference to fox, right? Jesus called Herod a fox. He says, you go and tell that fox. Now, fox is a designation that actually has favorable, kind of favorable connotations in English, doesn't it? For example, you might say somebody is sly like a fox, meaning they are witty or cunning or able to outwit their foe. Well, the way Jesus means it is not like that at all. Jesus views Herod with something less than respect. And him calling Herod a fox is meant to stress that and show this. See, in this context, fox could take on all kinds of different meanings including commonly symbolizing someone who considered themselves a lion, but in reality was much smaller and less impressive. It was used for someone who had little significance or was a deceiver or destroyer. And all those are a fitting description of Herod and how unimpressed Jesus is with him. See, Herod is not unlike many rulers and powerful people that exist today and throughout the ages, is he? He's someone who believes others should fear him and what he can do to them. He uses his power and influence and leverages people's inherent fear of man to get his way. Is that not what he's doing? He was crafty in the way he used his power and influence. He thought himself a lion, but Jesus sees past his facade, doesn't he? Herod might fancy himself a lion, and people might actually look at him and see a lion, but Jesus sees past the disguise to this little old fox. Jesus sees a little fox, and Herod's power means less than nothing to him. And why should it? Jesus is creator God shown up in flesh. Okay, If Herod does have power, it's only what? What Jesus has allowed him to have. If Herod can do anything, it will only be to Jesus' ends. But here's what Jesus is getting at. He is under divine imperative to do what he came to do. And no one can stop him. He will complete his task. That's what Jesus is getting at here. But notice that he also has more concern for doing the will of God than he does with what people think of him. Or even what people might do to him. Do you see that here? He knows that no one takes his life from him. Only that he lays it down. 
Jesus, you see, has more fear of God in the healthy biblical sense than he does fear of men, which is to say none at all. He fears God with a holy, reverent fear that the Bible says is the beginning of knowledge and the key to a life well lived. And having that sort of right fear of God means that, no, that one needs have no fear of man whatsoever. Now I wonder, is there a lesson here for us? Of course there is, because we tend to flip those, don't we? Whereas Jesus does not fear men, but only God, and thus is driven to do the will of God, no matter what the consequences are, we tend to fear men more than we fear God, and this leads us to skirt God's will, especially if it might cost us something in the eyes of people. Is this not the fear that motivates most everyone? And this fear of men versus fear of God actually comes down to what we truly worship. Michael Horton says it this way. He says, the first test of whether we are actually worshiping the right God is fear. We worship most what we fear most. Fear is an index of the object of our worship, the one ultimately in whom we place our trust. So if we fear men more than God, it's because we're worshiping other things which drives us to do what we do. If we worshiped God aright, we wouldn't fear men. I'm reminded of, there's an incredible speech. You can see the manuscript or watch it online. Uh, The late author, David Foster Wallace, gave this commencement address at Kenyon College, and he entitled it, This is Water. Well, Wallace, who as far as I know wasn't a Christian, said in this speech to these graduates that there's actually no such thing as atheism, practically speaking, because everyone worships something. He said, we don't get a choice on whether or not we worship. The only choice we get is what we worship. Do you see? This is quote. He said, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, and you will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. There are default settings, is what he said. Do you see what he's getting at there? Even if you worship your appearance or money or power or intellect, really the biggest fear that you have is what will people think of me? Because fear of loss of those things, right, means loss of favor with people. Why do we dress the way we do? You feared men today, I bet. Why do we dress the way we do? Why do we go where we go? Why do we live in the house we live or drive the cars we drive or post the things we post on social media? We must admit, if we're being honest, that at least part of the motivation in our lives is fear of what people will think of us. Even if we're philanthropists or always ready to help people, it might be because we want them to think we're charitable or selfless. Now, in the context of this passage, the reason to maybe fear Herod is because he thinks he could kill Jesus. But in our context, we don't fear because we, we, you know, we don't fear people because we think there will be physical consequences to not pleasing or impressing others. The consequences we fear is what people will think, how they will treat us, or if they will allow us to belong 
or if they will applaud us or think that we're special. I mean, why is survey after survey, year after year, that gauges what people's biggest fear is, why is public speaking often higher than spiders and snakes and heights and drowning and clowns? Because we're afraid to look bad in front of people. (laughs) That's why. The question, what will people think of me, drives more of what we do than we perhaps care to admit. We're afraid we'll lose the favor and praise of people, and that drives and motivates our decision-making from the mundane to the massive. So insidious is this, that some people will go out of their way to declare how little they care what people think. You ever know somebody like that? But that's really just a way of trying to get people to think they're hard or aloof or tough. Why do we fear men so much? Because we fear God too little. And it's here that we have another place where we must make a choice and where there's no neutrality offered. Do you fear God or do you fear men? Do you worship God or do you worship something else? That something, whatever it is, can thus be traced back, yes, to fear of people. Jesus' point here is that he fears God and is thus committed to divine will over what people will think or what they will do. Is that how it is for you? This comes down to obedience, doesn't it? Isn't isn't that what doing the will of God is? (laughs) Is it obeying? Well, what, what, what fear of man will do? Do you see? is make obedience seem too risky or unnecessary because the payoff for obeying God may be losing the favor of people. Isn't Jesus' choice here to obey Herod or obey God? Is that fair to say that's his choice? If he obeys Herod because he fears what Herod can do to him, he'll thus have to disobey God. Obedience is costly and oftentimes means losing, choosing who we really fear. Jesus constantly says in the Gospels, count the cost. And some people count those costs and decide not to follow him because following him oftentimes looks like dying. Following him oftentimes looks like self-denial. Following him oftentimes looks like weakness and servanthood. Following him oftentimes looks like people that are swimming Uh, with the current or walking down the wide road that leads to destruction, wondering why you're going the other way. And then pointing and laughing and otherwise ostracizing you. But if you have the favor of God, what does it matter if you have the favor of men? I'd go so far to say this. Can Can I be this risky? If you always have the favor of people, If you never have trouble in this world, if being attached to Jesus never costs you anything, it's probably a sign that you aren't following Jesus obediently, which is to say you aren't following Jesus. You look throughout the corridors of church history or biblical history. Haven't you seen where fear of men gets you? You guys know all these stories. Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife because what? He feared people. Moses was hesitant to obey the call of God because I can't speak good, right? You remember that? And they weren't good enough, he didn't think, right? He didn't trust God enough. People would think him a fool. Elijah lamented his life because Jezebel said she would have him killed. 
We go on and on, can't we? Conversely, we can look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, prophets who feared God more than they feared men, which put them out of favor with people, but kept them squarely in the favor and will of God. In fact, you know, in the book of Amos, there's this fella. If you read Amos, <laughs> you can see why. This guy does not like Amos at all, okay? He doesn't like him at all. He, he didn't like what Amos was saying about the powerful and the wealthy, about people who sat at ease at Zion, about how the king would be killed and the nations would go into exile. And this fella, he threatened Amos. And he told him to flee from the land. Doesn't that sound like Herod and Jesus here? Uh, and he told Amos, stop prophesying. And Amos said, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. God called me to do this. And so I obey him rather than you. I'm not fleeing, but your house will fall. And guess what happened? That's exactly what happened. Friends, God's will is where we are to live. If you are living in God's will, I mean, hear what I'm going to say. You will not fear men. You will fear God, and thus we will live for him. You will be worshiping God, which will drive you to obey. And when you obey, sometimes people aren't going to like that. And that's when you come to a decision point, right? That's when you come to a decision point. Fear God and obey Him and risk the frowns of people or fear men and disobey God. That's the decision. There's no, there's no Sweden in here, okay, in the middle. In the latter, you may feel safe. And comfortable in this world with plenty of applause and friends, but you won't have the favor of God. Is that worth it? Horton said once more, fearing God extinguishes paralyzing fear of anyone or anything else. When we fear God, all other fears become not manageable by human pride, but subdued by the God of promise and deliverance. Jesus lives at the center of God's will, and from a human perspective, that's a dangerous place to be. But spiritually speaking, there's no safer place. Whereas living at the center of human will is the safest place if we want to, uh, people to approve us and like us and live without trouble, but it's the most dangerous place to be spiritually. Jesus is determined to do what God has sent him to do, and that includes suffering. But doing God's will, listen, Doing God's will while suffering is still better than disobeying him and flourishing in the way that the world defines flourishing. That's the paradox of the kingdom of God. You say, Vaughn, that doesn't sound right. And that means you're starting to get it. And that you need to stop thinking the way the world does. Jesus essentially says, tell that fox that I'm unimpressed and I'm unmoved <laughs> by his threats. Because I am under divine imperative and compulsion to complete a task. Until then, I'm untouchable. And even when I die, I do so by my own prerogative and on my own time. That's what Jesus is saying. This is something we need to remember about Jesus' own death. That he came to die. He desired to die. And it only happened because he willed it so, even before the foundation of the world. See, too often Christians have presented Christ crucified as though he were a victim. We look at the crucified Christ as someone to be pitied. But nothing in Scripture sanctions that kind of view of Jesus. 
In death, no less than in life, he is always Lord. It was not a victim, but the Lord who died. As one author said, the cross bespeaks a sacrificial death, a voluntary act. Christ's death was self-chosen. It was accepted, and as therefore the character and value of a sacrifice, the manner, place, and time of Jesus' death were not in the hands of his enemies, but in his own. This is why he says here, I'm going to finish my course. And while it ends in Jerusalem, it ends when I say it ends. You must remember, Jesus' death is not a mistake. It's not a tragedy. Jesus wasn't a hapless or unwilling victim. It was God's plan before the foundation of the universe. God's plan A to rescue the world has been, always was, and always will be through the suffering and propitiating death of his Messiah. Jesus says as much in John 10, 18. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Says John Piper, the glory of the Son of God is not that death broke in and snatched him, and that he overcame the intruder. Death did not snatch him. It did not intrude upon his plans. He snatched death. Death served his plans. He destroyed death, not by escaping its intrusion upon his life, but by intruding himself into death's life and killing it from the inside and walking out victoriously. Christ walked into death of his own accord, and he walked out of his own accord. He chose when to die, and he chose when to rise. Death never had the upper hand. It only looked that way to the world. Jesus knows, you can tell from this text, he knows he goes to Jerusalem to die. And he will not die one second sooner than he intends. So really, again, what can Herod do to him? That fox Herod's desire is to kill Jesus. Jesus' desire is to gather people as a hen would gather chicks under the safety of her wings. How is Jesus' desire accomplished? It's accomplished through his desire to die, don't you see? Here's a double desire from Jesus, right? He desires to die on behalf of sinful humanity so that he can fulfill his desire to gather them unto himself. And again, if we're thinking fox versus hen, we're wanting to be the fox, aren't we? If you had to choose fox versus hen, what would you choose? If you're doing like Street Fighter game or something, right? And they're fighting, you're picking the hen. We think the fox will be the victor if those two are going against each other. But the hen is the one who will win. But irony of ironies, the hen wins through the hen's own death. Isn't that strange? The king's victory comes through the king's own death. Jesus must die, and he's happy to do it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The way this king exercises his kingly authority is by dying. As Jeremy Treat said, Jesus Christ embraced his cross as a monarch grasps a scepter. The throne of Christ is not like Herod's or Caesar's. The throne by which he shows forth his kingship is made of wood and is on a hill called the place of the skull between terrorists and insurrectionists. Who would have thought? You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. The coronation of King Charles filled the news cycle, didn't it? It was everywhere. And it was a splendid affair, wasn't it? I'm, as an aside, I'm not sure why Americans should care about any of that, right? Because I thought we fought a revolutionary war 
so that we wouldn't have to care about what happened with the British monarchy, right? But I digress. Charles rode, yes, through the streets of his coronation in a carriage made of gold and wore a golden robe and held golden scepters. And he was crowned with a crown of jewels, and he sat on this magnificent throne. And you know, the entire coronation cost upward of $125 million. Throngs of people filled the streets and the courtyards and, and watched this man crowned king of a faded empire. But let's face it, this is how kings are crowned. Whether they're figureheads like him or not is inconsequential. Kings sit on thrones. That's what they do, Right? And they wear splendid robes, and people cheer them, and they say things like, God save the king. And millions of dollars are spent on ceremonies so we could see some fella get a crown put on his head. You know, Jesus says, I will continue to cast out demons and heal the sick today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish what I came to do. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that there are only three literal days left of activity for Jesus that lays before him. We could see just by flipping through Luke, we have about 10 chapters left, right? There is still much to be done. But this phrase is figurative, a figurative way of expressing that it won't be long yet before he accomplishes what he came to do. And he came to do what was reverse the curse and break the kingdom into this world and take his rightful place as king. But Jesus will not take his place as king the way the kings of earth do. Jesus doesn't come with a golden crown or a splendid throne or a crowd of adoring onlookers or a golden robe, or in a palace. When he first arrived, he was, lay, was not laying in a bejeweled bassinet in a royal palace, but in a place where animals were kept and laid in a stone feeding trough. How will he take his place on the throne? After having just been flogged to the bone and spat upon, he will carry his throne through the streets and up a hill. But before that, he will have a purple robe put on his shoulders as a way to mock him, and he will have some thorns twisted into a makeshift crown and pressed down onto his temple, and his throne will be a Roman execution device while people hurl insults at him. He'll have a sign hanging above his head. This is king of the Jews as a way for Pilate to mockingly ask people, is this your king? See what Rome has done to him? But all of that was the way in which he took his place as king. Don't you see? And this fox thinks he can influence Christ's movements or intimidate him into submission. He will be outfoxed and he will be used as another tool to fulfill the plan of the true king. Jesus knows he will not die in this place because he must go to Jerusalem and there he will die along with the prophets that came before him. See what he says in verse 33? It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't say no prophet ever died away from Jerusalem, but we do know that historically, those whom God has sent to Jerusalem to preach against their wicked ways have often been met with rejection and death, frequently by stoning. And Jesus says, death in Jerusalem will be my fate, like the faithful prophets before me, and that's what I choose. But further, he ends his remarks to Herod in verse 33, and then in 34, he laments over Jerusalem, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now, if you think of major cities in America or around the world and what they're known for, whether in terms of historical events or landmarks, think of a few, Boston for wasting all that good tea, right? Dallas for the JFK assassination, Philadelphia for the Sinai Declaration of Independence, New York State 
for uh, the Empire State Building, London, Big Ben, Berlin Wall, uh, falling, right? Well, Jesus says that Jerusalem is known for something too. They became a place that rejected and killed God's messengers. The city that was to be the capital of Israel's religion, the city that more than any other city in the world should have embraced the prophets and received their message and wept over their sin as they returned to God instead became a, known as the city that rejected the prophets, rejected their message, killed them, and ignored God's call to return as they went on serving their bales and themselves. Jerusalem should have been the ones who were weeping. They should be mourning their sin and mourning how they treated God's messengers, but they aren't the ones lamenting here, are they? Jesus is the one lamenting. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this is tinged with a tone of sorrow and tenderness signaled by the repeating of the name of the city. Jesus shows the character of God here as he grieves over Jerusalem's posture towards the offer of divine mercy. And really, Jerusalem's response is reflective of the way the entire nation has responded to God's constant extension of mercy. Since Jerusalem housed the temple and was therefore the nation's religious center, historically the nation has not responded well to God, which is why they're in constant turmoil and exile and having prophets sent to them over and over again. God has longed to care for them. They have rejected him over and over. Isn't that not the story of your Old Testament? Over and over and over again. And now it's at this point Jesus describes himself like a hen who gathers her brood under her wings to protect them. That's a surprising picture, isn't it? I mean, honestly, if you were asked to describe God using things from nature, what would you choose? You know, we'd probably picture, use some pictures from the Bible, right? He's like a lion. That's a common one. We like that one. Strong, fierce, ruler of animal kingdom. Even a lamb, we don't mind so much, right? Because it reminds of spotless sacrifice. It's soft and cuddly, right? If we had to choose a bird, we'd pick like an eagle, which is also used in the Bible to describe God, right? Strong, swift, talons that can pierce its prey. What we wouldn't choose is a hen. I mean, really, a hen? Of all things. I mean, the stories I told you in the intro were surprising because when, when does a hen ever get the upper hand? When do we describe someone in a complimentary way by calling them a hen? Who thinks of hens, like at all? Like I'm from Denver. I never thought of a hen, right? The only time I saw a hen was in a bucket. Who looks at a hen, right, and thinks, you know, they have characteristics like the creator. But Jesus' self-designation here is of a hen. And in this image, Jesus reveals the heart of God. Because God's constant desire is to intimately care for, nurture, and protect his people. The kingdom of God never stops surprising, does it? Daryl Bach asks, is there a more tender image than this? Jesus says that he wishes he could have gathered the people under his wings so that he could bring them close and care for them and protect them from harm. His desire was for them, but their desire was not for him. He wanted to gather them. They only wanted to kill him. I love the way Ligon Duncan puts it. He said, the picture is earthy, isn't it? It takes us right into a farmyard, and perhaps there's a chicken hawk circling above the farm, and a hen notices it, and immediately she gathers her chick 
under her wings to protect them so that this hawk doesn't swoop them down and take them away and, and hem, the, hem them into a feast. Or perhaps the image is the image of a storm. A storm is approaching, a storm is cropping, and the chicks are frightened, and they're in danger. And the hen, again, sensing the danger, gathers her chicks under her wings to shelter them and protect them. And the Lord Jesus says, that is precisely what I've wanted to do with you, Jerusalem. That's precisely what I wanted to do for you, Israel. I've wanted to protect you. I've wanted to spare you from judgment of God. And then there are these ringing words at the end of verse 37. You were unwilling. The heart of God is for people, isn't it? That's the whole reason Jesus came to earth. And the reason he died in place of sinful man. He is tender and merciful and patient and abounding in steadfast love. He has offered mercy and forgiveness to the people repeatedly, and yet they have rejected him and been like a dog returning to its vomit. God's heart is for sinners, but sinners are not saved. If sinners are not saved, it's due to the sinner, not to God's unwillingness. God is clearly willing to save, isn't he? In fact, Jesus says that his desire is to have sinners to himself, but what happened? He says, I wanted this. I sent prophet after prophet after prophet to you to protect you, but you were not willing. I was willing, you were not, is what Jesus says. The only thing stopping the people from experiencing God's care was that they did not wish him to do so. That's it. And as a result, the gathering with his accompanying offer of protection could not play, take place. This is what's so silly about people looking at the Bible and looking at the world and saying, boy, why is God so severe? Why does he send people to hell? Why does he take out people and vanquish nations? We're thinking, if God is love, then he should be rainbows and butterflies and just giving people hugs and telling them that they can do whatever they want. You know what? Everyone gets to go to heaven when they die. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what people think. I should just be a good person and try hard and be sincere, and God th should thus be happy with it and give me what I want and send me to heaven where I also get to do whatever I like doing on earth. Isn't that the human posture? People hear about wrath and damnation and say, well, that all seems so unnecessary and cruel. This reminds me of when the late R.C. Sproul was at a conference and a student asked him this question. They said, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why when Adam first sinned was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? And Sproul was like flabbergasted at this question. He couldn't believe it. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after God had told them that on the day that they ate the forbidden fruit that they would surely die. And instead of dying that day, God clothed them in his nakedness and declared that the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman and the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people is what he said. And the crowd laughed and Sproul said, I'm serious. This is what's wrong with the church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The real question is, why wasn't it even more severe? So when we think of hell, we think of God as being somehow unjust or unnecessarily harsh on people. We don't realize what we're doing. We are missing the holiness of God and the gravity of sin, the purpose of the cross. And what Jesus is saying here, which is that God's desire is not to damn people. God's desire is to ingather sinners and bring them close. But the problem is that sinners don't want him. That's the problem. 
The problem is that people don't want Jesus, and so they reject his embrace. And so when they find themselves outside the banquet, when they die and they knock on the door, they should not be surprised when he says, who are you exactly? They're on the outside because they chose that. He opened the door. He said, this is how to enter. But if we say, no, I'll do it my own way. We can't be surprised in the end when the door is closed. As we said last week, the only people who could say this isn't fair are those who are saved by God in Christ. Because the only people who don't deserve their lot are people who are recipients of grace and mercy. Those who receive damnation do so, one, because it's what we all deserve, and two, because they chose to say no to God's offer of salvation. In the words of Jesus, they are not willing. J.C. Ryle said, let us understand that the ruin of those who are lost is not because Christ was not willing to save them, nor yet because they wanted to be saved, but could not, but because they would not come to Christ. And this passage makes that very clear. Christ is far more willing to save than we are to be saved. Matthew Henry put it this way, it is wholly owing to the wicked wills of sinners that they are not gathered under the wings of the Lord Jesus. But we've learned that Israel's rejection of Jesus will not stop God's plan. Jesus will go to Jerusalem and he will die just as he planned, but Israel's house will be left desolate. That's what Jesus says. There will be a tree that doesn't bear fruit and is cut down and thrown into the fire. And eventually, in less than 40 years from Jesus saying the words of Luke 13, Jerusalem will be thrown down and even the temple will be pulled down and it hasn't been built back since because Jesus is a man of his word. And friend, he desires to gather you as a hen gathers her brood. Are you willing? We have his desire. What's yours? If you don't know Jesus now, it isn't because of his unwillingness, it's because of yours. You see the tenderness and heart of Jesus here? Think of how helpless a baby chick is. I can't think of many more vulnerable, weak creatures than that. Can you? A baby chick? If you leave a baby chick outside to fend for itself... What's going to happen? It wouldn't last long, I'll tell you that. It it wouldn't eat. It wouldn't know where to go. It'd be easy prey for whatever creature was looking for a meal. Man, that's like you and me. On our own, we are helpless and hopeless. Even if to the world we look strong and impressive and confident, we eat bad food or no food, we're aimless, going wherever the wind takes us, and we're easy prey for the devil and for sin and temptation of the world. We're left exposed without the wing of Christ on us. What we need is a hen to gather us and bring us close and protect us under the shelter of his wings. And Jesus is making the offer. Are you willing to be brought in? Jesus makes the offer, will you see your need? Will you see your vulnerability? Will you see your weakness? Will you see that all that is available outside of him is a desolate house? You know, the tragedy of rejecting God's will is that you get what you ask for. The tragedy of repeatedly telling Jesus, you don't want his salvation and you don't want to submit to him and you don't want to give him your allegiance, is that eventually all you're telling him to leave you alone will lead him to leaving you alone. 
and forever. You know what happens to Israel in the Gospel of Luke after this story? See, we've been hit, yes, repeatedly, recently, with these urgent warnings from Jesus to turn to Him and receive the kingdom, haven't we? That's been a lot lately. Well, 13, 31 through 35 is a turning point in the gospel. Jesus will stop giving those warnings. He will stop focusing on the crowds. He'll stop addressing the nation, and he'll move to teaching his disciples because the nation that keeps rejecting him has seemingly made their decision. They want to be left alone? They'll get their wish. Isn't that truly what hell is? God giving us what we want? God granting our wish to be left alone by him? You know, some of you are waiting to obey Jesus because of what it might cost. Some of you fear men more than you fear God. Some of you are waiting to submit to Christ. Some of you are waiting to give him allegiance. Some of you are waiting to do his will until later. Some of you have rejected him and rejected him and rejected him, and you must know that at some point he'll give you what you want. Now is the time to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now is the time to submit, to give allegiance, to live for the kingdom, to do his will, to stop fearing people and start fearing God. Would you see Jesus' heart for sinners here? You see his heart for you? See his tenderness and compassion to your weakness and infirmities and struggles? You can go to him. No matter your state, he knows you're weak and wounded, sick and sore, but he stands ready to save you full of pity, love, and power. Would you go to him? The question that Jesus asked Jerusalem is what he's asking you today. How often would I have gathered you? Like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And Jesus is asking, are you willing? Will we come to Jesus? Will we respond in allegiance and obedience? Will we hear his call to sinners or will we reject him? Is it no in between? Go to him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and he will assuredly bring you near now and forever and will protect you under his mighty 